The parable of the dishonest manager. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the man said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his manager's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. And so he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were in effect until John came. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, and everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. So telling parables was Jesus' favorite method of instruction. About 35% of his recorded teaching comes to us in the form of parables. So they're very important. On the surface, they seem like rather straightforward sermon illustrations, but actually they are very sophisticated means of confronting people with the experience of God's presence in the world and confronting us with an insight into our own hearts as we, we respond to this uh, action of God. All the parables are intended to convey what Jesus once described as the mystery of the kingdom of God. It gives some insight into God's way of operating uh, in the midst of everyday affairs, 
to transform reality. Everything that Jesus meant by the coming of God's reign were conveyed through the parables. And to convey this, this truth, the parables draw on very familiar everyday features of Palestinian life. It's the world of farming and the world of weddings and fishing and travel and unemployment and crime. They are incredibly secular stories. And that serves partly to draw the hearers into the, into the drama so they get involved in what's being uh, spoken about. But this true-to-life picture usually contains some surprising twist at the end, some unexpected and usually quite shocking development that upsets the kind of conventional expectations that are triggered by this sort of newspaper-like story that Jesus is telling. The sting in the tail is, I think, intended to serve two main ends. One is to cause his hearers to sort of sit back on their haunches and take notice of what he's talking about. It's more than just an everyday story that he's, uh, he's portraying. There's something deeper being disclosed in it. And so the shock to the senses is encouraging his hearers to sort of prick up their ears and pay attention. But also to alert the hearers that God's kingdom is itself a surprising, shocking reality. It's not a familiar, tame, homely, reassuring spiritual experience. On the contrary, God's kingdom horrifies and appalls. It challenges accepted wisdom, it reverses expectations, it upends established values. It calls the last first and the first last, the small great and the great small. It overturns judgments, uh, everyday moral judgments and everyday conventional religious piety. One final sort of point of interpretive wisdom is to realize that in interpreting the parables, it's always worth noting where they come in the, in the gospel narrative, um, how the gospel writer uses these stories to drive home certain characteristic themes and emphases. So Luke uses the two parables in chapter 16, the parable of the unjust manager, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and then the parable of, of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, to further Luke's very characteristic and very disturbing emphasis on the dangers and corruption of wealth. It's one of Luke's characteristic themes, is, uh, is the, the, the impact of the kingdom on the ways we think about and handle material possessions. And so even between these two parables in chapter 16, we have Jesus' um, teaching, which also reflects on the same theme. We just heard that when Michelle uh, read, and I chose the longer text, not just the parable, the longer context, because I think it's very relevant to understanding uh, this particular story. So let's down, turn now and consider one of Jesus' most surprising and challenging parables of all. It's one of the most difficult and perplexing parables that Jesus ever told, and interpreters uh, differ greatly between themselves in what, how to make sense of it. There are two features about this parable that are particularly disturbing to good, upright Christian readers like us. One is that the hero of the story is a rogue. He's a, a dishonest businessman, somebody who defrauds his boss, gets caught, then cheats him a second time, to get himself out of hot water. So he's hardly a moral hero. Uh, he's quite the reverse. Even more disturbing, however, is that the story ends up with this ripoff merchant being praised by the boss in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, and even apparently 
commended by Jesus as a model that we should learn from. So how do we make sense of this rather unethical story coming from the great moral teachers of all time? Well, the setting of the story, again, would have been very familiar to Jesus' first hearers. It was common in first century Palestine for wealthy absentee landlords to entrust the management of their rural estates to a manager, a kind of live-in um, uh, steward or manager of, of the property. Such managers had absolute authority to act on behalf of the master to operate his estate as he thought appropriate, to rent out the land to tenant farmers, to fix and collect the rent, to make loans to tenants and to merchants, and to deal with any debtors as he saw fit. So the first thing of the parable, the landowner discovers that his manager has been squandering his property. Uh, in some way, he's been defrauding him of the full income that the manager, that the owner uh, was um, entitled to on the property. And so in response, the owner summons the farm manager and he asks, what is this I hear about you? And the sense of that question is, why have you done this to betray my trust? It requires the manager to draw up a closing account, uh, probably to ascertain the full extent of the damage that's been done, and he sacks him. You cannot be my manager any longer. In scene two of the parable, we go into the manager's head. And he asks himself, what will I do now that my master is taking my position away from me? Physically, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm either too lazy or too proud for manual labor. So that won't work. Psychologically, I'm ashamed to beg. It's beneath me to become a professional beggar. So what am I going to do? And then the penny drops. Verse 4, I know what I shall do. So when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. And he dreams of a scheme to secure his own future by bestowing tangible benefits on his master's debtors. The debtors will be so grateful for this act that they will receive him once he's unemployed into their homes where he can live at ease until something better turns up. The next scene of the parable is when the manager carries out his plans. He summons each of the employer's debtors, asks how much they owe, and then offers them a huge discount in return for instant payment. So one person owes 100 jugs of olive oil, about 8 to 9 gallons, which would be worth about 1,000 denarii, about three years' wages. And he grants this debtor a huge 50% discount. Another owes 100 containers of wheat, about 100 acres worth, valued at about 500 denarii, about 18 months' wages, and he offers him a 25% discount if he uh, pays up on the spot. He does the same for each one of the employer's debtors. In the final scene of the parable, his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus adds the observation, for the children of this age are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. So this comes as a bit of a shock, really, 
the dishonest manager has acted dishonestly a second time by falsifying the financial records, cooking in the books. So why then is he commended both by his master in the story and by Jesus who tells the story? That's the challenge, that's the moral challenge in this particular parable. And on that, the interpreters do not agree. It's possible to read the parable, like all parables, in different ways. Some think, this is quite a common way of resolving the problem, some think that the dishonest manager, this is always very useful to have in an ethical story, he repents in the middle of the drama. So they uh, speculate that his action of reducing loans is not fraudulent, what he's doing is eliminating the interest component that he added to the original debt. So the person who owed 100 jugs of olive oil actually owed the master 50 jugs of olive oil plus 50 more, which was interest on that, which went into the manager's own pocket. So he was cancelling his own commission on the debt. And this would be a useful thing to do because the debtor would be happy he could repay his principal, get himself out of debt. The master would be happy because he's got all his loans back. And the manager would be happy because he's just made a future friend and he's going to want to call in hospitality uh, in the future. So that's a way, one way of, uh, of resolving this problem. And it's certainly possible, but I find it rather hard to see the manager's actions in the parable as an act of genuine repentance. In verse 4, he is purely motivated by self-interest, not by any higher moral voice of conscience. So I want, to, I want to suggest a different way of reading this parable. And there are two observations on the parable that I think help to commend the interpretation that I'm going to offer you. The first is that the parable is not only about the dishonest manager, it's also about the rich man. In fact, the very first line of the parable says there was a rich man. The story opens and closes with the rich man's voice. And in Luke's gospel, the rich are usually not always, because the father of the prodigal son doesn't qualify uh, for this characterization, but usually the rich in Luke's gospel are criticized by Jesus. Uh, Woe to you who are rich. Uh, for example, in the um, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So both the rich man and the manager represent the children of this age, as Jesus calls them in verse 8, those who stand outside the kingdom of God, who operate according to the value system of this generation. So when the owner praises the dishonest manager, it's not because the manager's actions were morally praiseworthy, but because he probably can't help but admire the sheer brilliance of the manager's cheating ways, uh, which is probably why he employed him in the first place. In short, there are no good guys in this story. The whole episode is intended as a kind of window into the way the fallen sinful world system operates. It's like a parable on Wall Street uh, where the there's no heroes in the story. It's just a kind of uh, portrayal of the way things are in the world. So that's, that's the first observation. The second and more important observation 
is that Jesus does not praise or approve of the actions of the dishonest manager at all. Rather, he draws analogies between the value system of this age and the value system of the kingdom of God. So the values practiced by rich landowners in first century Galilee and by their hired managers are opposed to the values, the righteous values or justice of the kingdom of God. They stand in polar opposites. But the children of light, those who embrace what God is doing in bringing his kingdom, the children of light still have things to learn, both good and bad, from the way Wall Street operates, from the way the world system operates. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. So what things are these that Jesus is inviting his followers to learn from the way the world operates, the way the world system of money and power actually operates? What are disciples to learn from the story? Well, let me suggest that there are three things that Jesus himself draws lessons from the story about how the children of light should live uh, under the reign of God. Three things. The first is money is dangerous. Money is dangerous. Because in commenting on the story, Jesus underscores the mortal danger that material possessions pose to disciples. Again, one of Luke's great emphases. And this danger is depicted in a variety of ways. For example, in verse 8, he speaks of dishonest wealth. Make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth. The phrase, I don't think, means dishonestly acquired wealth. It's not a license to make money by unethical means. The Greek phrase would be literally translated as the mammon of injustice. And I think this phrase is intended to designate a kind of inherent tendency in all material wealth. It's wealth that trends inexorably towards injustice. There's something about material possessions as such, or the, or the pursuit of material possessions, that has this kind of almost default setting to, to trend towards injustice. And the evidence from that, of course, is all around us. The world's top three billionaires own more assets than the combined GDP of the world's 45 least developed nations, 600 million people. The 356 richest individuals in the world own more than the rest of the world's population of something like 7 billion people. In the US, the richest 1% of the population have more combined wealth than the bottom 95% of the population. We've heard all this in the Occupy Wall Street campaign a year or two ago. 20% of the world's population control 86% of its GDP. The bottom 20% of the world's population owns just 1% of the world's possessions. Bill Gates' wealth exceeds that of the bottom 45% of American households. 
on man. These figures now are a wee bit out of date, about 20 years old, but I've always been very struck by them. In 1998, the United Nations Development Program tried to estimate what it would cost above current expenditures by the UN to meet the world's development needs. And they worked out that a further, these are all US dollars, a further 9 billion US dollars on top of what was already being spent, another 9 billion, would be enough to provide clean water and sanitation for everyone on earth. 12 billion would cover reproductive health services for all women worldwide. 13 billion, in addition to what was already being spent, would be enough to feed every person on earth and meet all basic health care needs. And another 6 billion would provide a basic education for everybody on the planet. Added all together, they calculated that if the world would spend another $40 billion, it could meet the world's development needs. That $40 billion is only one-fifth of the $200 billion that the US government agreed in October 2001 to pay Lockheed to build a new fighter jet, the F-35 fighter jet, one-fifth. $40 billion is approximately 4% of the combined wealth of the 225 richest people in the world. So you got those 225 people together and asked them all to half-tithe their income. That would be enough to meet the needs that um, the UN calculated. Or again, the USA spends over $10,000 per minute on military expenditure. Meanwhile, 65 million children die every year from malnutrition and preventable diseases. In 2010, the world has spent $630 billion on weapons. Of that, the US accounts for 43%, six times more than China spends, for example, with US military spending having increased by 81% since 2001. So all that, I think, exemplifies the mammon of injustice. The inherent tendency for the pursuit of wealth and power to create and sustain injustice. Or again, in verse 11, Jesus contrasts unrighteous wealth with what he calls true riches. What is true, what is really good. If you then have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? So wealth, I think, is dangerous because it seduces us into thinking that what is really important in life is making more money. We are talking about this about the Malaysian Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, he's got all the wealth he needs and they found in his, in his house all this, all this money put aside he didn't need. What, why is that? And even on a more modest level, people are prepared to sacrifice relationships and health and family life and social well-being all in the name for making money that they don't really need. So in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of the deceitfulness of riches. There's something about it that deceives those who search for it. The true good in life comes from embracing the values and the priorities of God's kingdom not from amassing treasure on earth. 
Or again in verse 14, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for being lovers of money and using it to justify themselves in the sight of others. So another way in which wealth corrupts is by feeding human pride, by undergirding human status systems. And Jesus reminds us here is that God reads our hearts, not our bank balances. And what is prized by human beings, which is status, what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Perhaps most powerfully of all, in verse 13, Jesus portrays wealth as a potential idol that rivals the worship of God. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. So, of course, it's not possessing wealth that's inherently wrong. It's when wealth possesses us so that we live our lives in service of material gain. But, of course, the boundary between possession of wealth and possession by wealth is frighteningly easy to cross because wealth always makes a bid for our hearts. And to withstand seduction, we must repeatedly choose to love and serve and cling to God rather than to love and serve and cling to possessions. So the first lesson from the parable, I think, in terms of the interpretation that Jesus builds on it, is that wealth is morally and spiritually dangerous. It can so easily, so subtly promote unrighteousness, justify injustice, pander to human pride, corrupt our value system, so that we accord true value to things that don't really matter, that can seduce our hearts so that we worship and serve money and power rather than God. What's the solution? How do we withstand the seduction? Well, this leads us to the second lesson to be drawn from this parable, which is the need to be guided by relational values and our use of possessions. The one thing about the manager's behavior that Jesus comments on is how he used unrighteous mammon to make friends for himself and therefore to secure a welcome in their homes. His actions were selfish and his, sorry, his motivations were selfish and his actions were dishonest. But he is wise enough to see that at a time of crisis, relationships are what counts. And Jesus invites his hearers to learn from this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes, whatever they are. So the main way we guard against the dangers of wealth is by using it to serve the relational values of God's kingdom, which means, on the one hand, avoiding extravagance and self-indulgence and opulence, remembering that what is prized by human beings is an abomination to God. And on the other hand, investing our resources and our energies as best as we can in people and projects that promote human dignity and justice and reconciliation and peace and wholeness, things that are consistent with God's reign. 
things that are compatible, the means by which indeed that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, things that build relationships of friendship and equality. And this, I, I guess, is how we also withstand the idolatry of wealth. We can subvert the spiritual power of possessions by using them to love and serve God. How? By loving and serving those whom God loves and serves. And that is especially in the Gospels, the poor and the oppressed. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to suggest that how we handle material wealth now is a measure of our suitability for eternity, our fitness, if you like, for the coming age. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is not your own? What is your own? Of course, he's not suggesting, you have to say this, very Protestant, that we're saved by our good deeds, but that ethical deeds demonstrate our salvation, if you like. That failure to live now by the values of God's kingdom calls into question our suitability for God's kingdom in his future, since our hearts seem to be in a different place to our words. It's not a matter of deeds saving us, but deeds proving whether our trust in God is genuine, whether we are sincerely committed to loving God and loving our neighbour, whether we will be comfortable in God's kingdom when it comes in its fullness. When we reduce Christian faith to an eternal insurance policy, which is a great apostasy of our age, I think, the inevitable result is moral enfeeblement, distorted theology, and downright hypocrisy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The third lesson from these parables, I think, is the need for a kind of heavenly street wisdom. So the dishonesty of the manager is not what is praised or commended, but his shrewdness or his insight or his prudence, even his wisdom. That's the thing that Jesus picks out as the thing that we need to pay attention to. Because wealth is on the one hand, so powerful, so dangerous, so corrupting, so seductive, it also is something that is good, something that expresses human creativity, something that is capable of building relationships, bringing dignity and freedom to people. Because of this paradoxical two-sided nature of wealth, we need wisdom in our handling of it. And it needs to be a kind of street wisdom that understands the economic realities of modern life, that knows how to work within the system to bring good out of what is often evil. It's not a withdrawal from the world system, as tempting, increasingly tempting as that feels today. It's not a withdrawal from the world system, but a subversion of the world system. 
but we must have a heavenly street wisdom, one that engages economic life of this age with the values and relational priorities of the kingdom of God. Or as Jesus puts it in another of his parables, we need to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. As wise as serpents, street wisdom, and as gentle as dove, heavenly street wisdom. Of course, it's not an easy balance for us to attain, but without it, without holding the wisdom of serpents and the gentleness of doves together, we'll either fall into a kind of naive idealism. We were so heavenly minded, we really have nothing much to offer the system around us. Or a worldly conformity, where we succumb to the idolatry of the present age while confessing trust in God. So we need God's help, of course, to find such heavenly wisdom, to learn from the children of this age, those who resist God's kingdom, to learn from them, while remaining at the same time the children of light, who work for and who seek to conform our lives to the agenda and values and priorities of God's kingdom. For, as Jesus said, where our heart is, there are treasurers also. And where our treasurers, that's where you find our hearts.